This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have a special guest. Her name is Kathleen Fisher. She is the head of Wealth and Investment Strategies at Alliance Bernstein. Bernstein manages about $540 billion. They're, they're just a giant company in 22 countries, 3,500 employees. I think they have something like 200 uh, analysts and 150 portfolio managers. Uh, they're just a behemoth. And she runs uh, all of the wealth and investment strategies. If you're at all interested in asset management and what it's like working at a giant firm or what it's like to be a woman at a very senior level in really Wall Street still is a male-dominated profession, um, this is really an interesting conversation. Uh, there are a few people who, who know this business and know the human side of it, as well as Kathy. She's just tremendously knowledgeable and insightful um, and and full of all sorts of uh, intelligent commentary. I think uh, this is the sort of conversation. So if you're at all interested in asset management, wealth strategies, investment portfolio strategies, uh, this is the podcast for you. With no further ado, here is my conversation with Alliance Bernstein's Kathleen Fisher. My guest this week is Kathleen Fisher. She is the head of wealth and investment strategies at Alliance Bernstein, a firm that manages about $540 billion uh, with 3,500 employees in 22 countries. She joined the firm as a senior portfolio manager uh, and member of Bernstein's private client investment policy group. Before joining Bernstein, she spent 15 years at J.P. Morgan, most recently as managing director advising banks on acquisitions, divestitures, and financing techniques. She graduated from Bates College and has an MBA from NYU. Kathleen Fisher, welcome to Bloomberg. Glad to be here. And I'm going to call you Kathy yes, instead of Kathleen. thank you. I know that's your everyday name. You started as an equity analyst. What attracted you to finance in the first place? You know, let me back up and say, I started as a young economist. I started at the ah. Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Mm -hmm. uh, I was there for three years. I did monetary research as well as GDP research. It was an amazingly wonderful learning experience to do high quality research. It was very academic, but I learned the importance of getting your facts right, which today is more relevant than ever, isn't it? When we have a word that's called fake news. Fake News. But, right. and it was a great learning experience about the importance of footnotes, about citing your sources. That has followed me in everything I've done since then. Um, having come to New York, though, to do that job, I did start meeting people who were in investment banking and equity research. And lo and behold, someone I met gave me an opportunity to go to Morgan Stanley to be a bank stock analyst. And that's how I got into equity research, which um, back then, it was a, still a relatively new field, very exciting, and for me, um, very intellectually rewarding to focus on relative valuations, but to also learn that what you think is so right often takes the market much longer to agree with or perhaps never agree with. Mm -hmm. So it was a great learning experience. Any, any particular example stand out as... 
Well, hey, this was quite quite the um, memorable experience. Um, I was I was covering bank stocks at a time when bank stocks were very much out of favor. And therefore, no one wanted to hear a word I said for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that in and of itself was a great experience. So you spent a lot of your career at J.P. Morgan after Morgan Stanley. What was that experience like? What did you do for them? My timing at J.P. Morgan was incredibly fortuitous because I did a lot of bank M&A at a time when bank M&A was absolutely a huge trend mm -hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. Uh, so it was a very active space and tons of activity. So it was um, a, a really a wonderful experience and one that um, captured both all that one does in M&A and corporate finance about valuations and, and the right price to pay for a deal. But also it brought in the human side of things because mm -hmm. with bank mergers, needless to say, cost reduction meant people reduction. And um, you had to get your head around that. Um, and the important thing is, in a world that makes sense over time, it did make sense for the banking industry to shrink. Those job cuts would come eventually. Those mergers accelerated them, but mm -hmm. it was something that you had to stand back and say, you know it's going to happen over time, regardless of, of when. So your tenure at J.P. Morgan, I believe that predated the Jamie Dimon era, is that Very right? Very much predated. It was pre-Chase merger, actually. Oh, okay. Yes. So I was going to ask you how much time you spent working with Jamie, but no, obviously- Quite a long time ago. Obviously not. So what led you to Alliance Bernstein, although if memory serves- when you joined, it was Bernstein still, right? Before no, I joined in 2001. The merger occurred in 2000. So I came post the Alliance mm -hmm. Bernstein merger. I joined uh, Alliance Bernstein because several of my colleagues from J.P. Morgan had migrated to Alliance Bernstein over time. And therefore, they uh, enticed me to join the firm. And you've been there ever since? I've been there ever since, since 2001. So your current title is Head of Wealth and Investment Strategies. What does the head of wealth and investment strategies do? Well, I am blessed to work with a team of 35 extraordinary experienced professionals who uh, are in two separate groups. One is the Wealth Strategies Group, which mm -hmm. develops the models that help our clients pre-experience the likely financial outcomes of decisions they can make, whether those decisions are around wealth transfer strategies or retirement or charitable giving. The idea that you have many variables that you can control mm -hmm. and therefore how to think about different asset allocations, different structures. We help our clients think through all those options. Are you running Monte Carlo simulations or or what are you actually doing to, to derive those variable outputs based on different decisions? Our core model does indeed utilize a Monte Carlo engine, but it's one that we have developed ourselves over the years because we, as a research-based firm, want to make sure we are informed by history, and therefore we want to take responsibility for embedding relationships that make sense over time. So it's our model, but using a lot of the important quantitative techniques that are important to getting that right. The other team is um, the team, the private client investment policy group, which uh, works on asset allocation advice and strategies for clients once they have made the appropriate decisions about their goals and objectives, um, and also the specific execution strategies using the different investment portfolios that we offer at our firm. So one side of the group is planning, the other side is actually asset management, and you want the portfolio to match the plan. Yes. Is, am, am I oversimplifying that? That's or? very good. And it's actually, we're not, the, we're not the portfolio managers ourselves. We're making the asset allocation advice using the portfolios that are managed at the firm. 
So all internal. So in other words, you're creating the salad from ingredients made within. Is that too sexist? To good, make a, good analogy. A good an- No, 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 like no. That? That's sal- We all eat salads. That's okay. good. Yeah, yeah. Some of us le- less than we should. <laughs> That's good. So, so it's in-house portfolios that are created from. It's an in-house mo- asset allocation model using various funds and assets that are also managed in-house. So, really, you uh, do you use outside managers? So we, well? we use uh, we off, we use ETFs where appropriate, um, but the bulk of our services are indeed managed in house. Let's talk a little bit about last year. Twenty seventeen was kind of an unusual year. We had very high returns in the United States, even better returns overseas, especially dollar denominated, and incredibly low volatility and very very low drawdowns. What do you make of the way twenty seventeen played out? You captured all the anomalies, and no one knew going into 2017 that they would occur. So it's a great reminder that you don't know in any given year what's going to happen, especially the overseas returns for dollar-based investors. We started the year with all the focus on the U.S., but the global synchronous recovery, the benefit to earnings around the world, all of these were very positive surprises that led equities to do quite well. But the fact that there was such calm around the globe, despite Mm -hmm. the geopolitical issues, which the market really has absorbed very nicely, the calm made the sharp ratio for the year probably one of the highest on record, right? Returns mm-hmm. relative to unit of risk, given the volatility in the market, was really quite remarkable. So it was an extraordinary year. It was actually probably about a perfect year in that we had no months when there was a negative return on the global Amazing. stock market. So um, lots of record-breaking uh, events in 2017. Um, and when we look forward, we think a lot of those good things are still in place. The challenge, though, is we would also argue that a lot of the good news is already in the market. Already priced in. So one of the things I find fascinating is when you have, as you folks do, a global allocation, do you get pushback from clients, not in 2017, but in a 2015 or 2014, hey, U.S. stocks are doing great. Why are we wasting all this time with all these overseas holdings? What what sort of pushback does the diversified portfolio generate? I, I will say we spend a lot of time with clients reminding why you have diversification, right? You never know when things will change, and therefore we remind there will always be times when you hold something that is out of favor or doing less well than you would like. And certainly holding non-U.S. stocks ever since the financial crisis has been a drain on returns mm-hmm. until 2017. But we know that over time, they will trade places. They do. They have. 2017 showed that. This year, non-U.S. stocks continue to outpace the U.S. for dollar-based investors. And that is the power of diversification for long-term investors. And our clients are long-term investors. So they do embrace the idea that diversification will help them get the returns they expect with the amount of risk they're willing to tolerate over time. What about the general trend towards indexing? How do you, you guys are an active uh, set of managers, although you do use ETFs. How do you see this overall trend away from active management and towards indexing playing out, especially your client base tends to be a fairly sophisticated, high net worth group of investors? 
Clearly, active and passive should and can coexist. There is a role for passive. And as a research-based firm, we have to acknowledge, as we do, that the, the, the cheapness of passive, which has come down a lot in the past 40 years, means that investors can indeed get very cheap access to all many pockets of the market they couldn't before. So for clients who have relatively short time frames, who are very focused on getting market returns, it, there's nothing wrong with passive. But for clients who want a chance of outperforming over time and do have a longer time horizon where active has time to play out, have more, I think it means more options now than they had before in that active managers know they need to really show their value. They can't be index huggers. They need to be have high conviction in their strategies and have to be able to communicate why they should play out over time. But you do need time for active strategies to work. And concentrated portfolios, high conviction portfolios that look very different than the market um, are Meaning showing high active share, high active very share, little, exactly. Very little correlation with the benchmarks right. themselves. In, in fact, we have services that are benchmark agnostic. Equity services, we're saying, huh. you know, don't even think about benchmarking us. We have some concentrated portfolios with 20, 25 stocks. And when you have that conviction and the time to have it work, um, those are nice satellites to have around core portfolios. So, you are a broad allocator. Let's talk a little bit about the other half of the portfolio, the fixed income portion. I have legitimately been hearing for 10 years that this bond bull market is over. It's dead, it's done, and then next year, I guess maybe this is the year. We've seen rates start to tick up. What does that mean for fixed income, and are we really at the end of the bond bull market? Uh, you are right. We've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, I think some clients are beginning to think it's a broken record. Um, but um, when you think of how strong the global economy is, and although, remember, inflation has been the, mis the mystery here. Inflation has been so low for so long. If the economy continues to be as robust as it has been, it is likely inflation will tick up a bit. And even a little bit will encourage central banks to become uh, less accommodative. We expect rates to move up gradually and modestly over time. We can't wait, though. This is getting a little bit tiresome to have these have rates stay as low as they have. We've already seen some signs of inflation ticking up around the world. And fairly recently, early 2018, there are signs, and late 2017, there are some signs of small amounts of wage pressure. Is that going to continue? What, yeah. How do you look at that and integrate that into a portfolio? We do think the pockets of, uh, of stress in the job market indicate that wage pressure can develop, but it we, we're not, you know, it's, we, none of us have a crystal ball on this, but we do expect that to be an, a, a source of upward pressure. So we do think that rates will be rising, but as I said, gradually. Our current forecast, though, is for four Fed rate hikes in 2018, and we do think we'll start to see rates picking up a bit from here, especially as the central banks in other parts of the world fall into step as well. So I see a lot of pushback on bond funds versus individual bonds. Is that an issue you ever deal with with clients? There's, there seems to be some sort of confusion around, do I own individual bonds or am I better off in a fund and not have to pick individual bonds? How do you manage that in your portfolios and what do you think of the difference? There has been enormous press over the years about um, problems with bond funds, which um, our clients understand are, are, are not true, i.e., um, 
people who hold individual bonds usually don't mark their bonds to market and right. therefore are not paying attention to the actual um, price loss they may have when rates rise. Bond funds, in contrast, especially intermediate bond funds that are intentionally diversified across the term structure, are looking to take advantage of changing um, yield curve shapes. They're looking to take advantage of short-term rates rising, you name it, so they can reinvest coupons in higher yielding bonds when rates rise. And therefore, bond funds are very flexible, uh, especially when rates rise, to let you take advantage of the changes that occur. Uh, there's another factor, which is um, very important. It's that bond liquidity is no longer as, as broad as it was pre-crisis. And therefore, bond funds uh, are much better for clients who need to pull money out of their funds as opposed to selling an individual bond at a very poor price in a less liquid market. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like for you as a woman working in a field that's been so male-dominated for so long. Have you seen any improvement? Have things gotten better? Uh, are there more opportunities for women in this field? Things have definitely gotten better. The, the, it's very obvious that the industry wants women for the right reasons, i.e., we want for diversity of thought. We want women. We want people of color. We want to have much more um, different kinds of input. Um, so many studies have shown how much better teams are when they are diverse, and we want to have that advantage. And also, our clients expect it, which is which is good. I think you get you get a lot of positive reinforcement. And I do think one of the reasons things are getting better is that companies are so much more flexible than they ever were before, mm -hmm. and and that's good for men and women. Right, the fact that there is much more you can work remotely; these are all good things that encourage a fluid and adaptive workforce that, it, that benefits everyone. The pay differential between men and women is as bad as it was. Is it getting better? Problem with any kind of pay measurements is that it's very hard to actually look at identical jobs. I would argue that uh, certainly at my firm and at, at, mo at every firm I know, people get the same pay for identical jobs. Mm -hmm. It's really that's the challenge is actually saying each job, how you measure each job. Um, Michelle Myers of Bank America, Merrill Lynch, specifically cited a lack of women at the top of the industry as a challenge for women in finance. And I'm assuming she means a lack of role models, a lack of mentors. What was your experience coming up through Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, and now Alliance Bernstein? So let me start by saying I'm a partner at our firm, and that is wonderful in that I and my other senior female colleagues um, are very focused on coaching, mentoring, and sponsorship of young women. That mm -hmm. is absolutely a, a dominant force. When I was younger, um, I was kind of lucky in that I, I never felt the need to fit in, and, I, and, and that meant that I wasn't looking as much for female role models as perhaps some people might have been back then. Um, and therefore, um, it, it didn't stymie me because I always thought that if you had good ideas and were um, contributing, you would be rewarded. So I was very lucky that it didn't trouble me, me too much. But I think I, it's am important. Am I reading too much into this? Are you suggesting you stood out as a woman and there was an advantage to that? I, can't, I will not go that far. Um, I will say that the... Um, I, that I think some of the frustrations that some people may have had in their careers, mm -hmm. I didn't have um, and, and was very fortunate in every firm I worked for not to have had those. So what do you think is the current state of affairs in gender relations? This past year is really feels like a major turning point in the roles of genders and what is and isn't 
acceptable behavior. Am, am I overstating that? I think or? the fact that conversations are being held at the company level in public forums is really good. And everyone's having conversations they might not have had before. And openness leads to good results and good outcomes and much more honesty, candor, and effectiveness. So I think this is indeed a, a, good, a good, good spot to be in. Um, the time will tell, but I, I am most focused on how exciting the brilliant young women that are coming up uh, are doing and the impact I think they will have because there is so much more conversation about mm -hmm. women making sure their voices are heard, about taking care and not to in any way uh, make, it, make anything seem like it's male-oriented. And I think there's a lot of good things that are happening because of that. Holding aside what, what's the right thing to do, the social issue aspect of it, when you look at the recent uh, financing at Uber, which is known as a, a sort of frat house bro mentality, it costs them tens of billions of dollars, both the founders, the employees, the outside uh, investors, because of that, you know, juvenile frat house approach. Have we reached a point where corporate America has said, enough is enough, this is real money, and we have to get serious about it? Are we at that stage yet? You know, you raised a really good point, which is that the transparency that the internet has permitted has made it hard for companies to hide. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. Uh, so I, I do think there's a much greater awareness that good behavior um, is necessary. And I think that's going to be very helpful in reinforcing uh, more good behavior down the road. Let's talk a little bit about what you see as head of wealth management and investment strategies. You work with a big spectrum of investors from individuals to institutions to everything in between. How do these different investors differ uh, and in what ways are they the same? Well, I'm going to focus just on the private client business. Sure. And um, what's what's interesting there is that it has nothing to do with asset size. People are people. And everyone has their own personal preference for risk and return. Mm -hmm. And you could have two people with exactly the same amount of money, and they could have a whole different view as whether they have enough or, the, or they're going to run out of money. And both could be in very good places, but they each have a very different perspective. So um, we clearly focus a lot on making people understand the likely financial outcomes of all the decisions they can make uh, and so that they have the confidence and the understanding to actually make very good judgments about long-term planning. That fear of running out of money, I I've heard that. I'm sure you've heard that from people who really, unless they start accumulating Picasso's will never run out of money. Why is this such a significant concern from people who you would otherwise think are totally financially secure? It has nothing to do with intellectual knowledge. It has everything to do with embedded psychology. Mm -hmm. And and as I've said, there's there's you don't know until the person explains, you know, that something whether it's something in their background or just their personal makeup, which makes them very conservative and fearful that terrible things could happen that could indeed wipe out their their financial nest egg. How, how do you respond to that? Um, it really gets to what I said before about modeling. Um, if we can show that even in very poor market conditions, they will be in a good place, that is very reassuring to people. So we do indeed do our planning to the 90th percent confidence level mm -hmm. to make sure people know that even in very poor conditions, they'll be fine. What about inflation? What sort of inflation assumptions do you build into those sort of plans? 
We let inflation uh, be a, it is a variable, i.e. we're not saying we know where inflation mm-hmm. will go. We, we do with, we, when we do forecasts, we do 10,000 trials, and inflation is one of the factors that does unfold over time. It can be very high. It can be very low. And remember, deflation can be as bad as inflation. Sure. But um, we, we want to show a range of expected outcomes for inflation as well because you're so right. Inflationary environments that are extreme can be very dangerous. Huh. That, that, that's quite interesting. So tell us about your day-to-day. What does that look like? Are you, because you work with two different groups of both planners and, and the asset management side. Uh, you're working with clients. What, what's a day in the life of Kathleen Fisher like? Well, you said it. I have I have the incredible luxury of, of a lot of diversification in my daily life. Uh, my team is working on long-term asset allocation projects. We're working on long-term planning projects. We're, we're publishing for both our clients. Uh, we're creating communications for our advisors. We're meeting with clients if our perspective can be useful to mm-hmm. a client meeting. So we have a vast array of different uh, things going on at any given time. We speak in front of public forums in terms of groups. Um, so lots of diversification. But what we, what's good about all of it is that we have a lot of interaction with clients and therefore can see um, what issues really matter to people and where we can be uh, helpful and more clear in communicating. So we mentioned outliving their money. What are some of the other large concerns clients have these days? Well, we didn't talk too much about outliving money, but I'm glad you raised that because that indeed longevity risk is we always remind clients the biggest risk they have. Nothing in say the that, w- say that again. Longevity, longevity risk is the biggest risk clients have. Huh. People worry about market returns, but just think that nothing uh, in in human history has prepared people for a world where they work for forty years and then may have to live on what they save for the next thirty or forty years. Now, for very wealthy people, it's a different dynamic, but still, it's a very different. thing thing when you're talking about living perhaps as long as you have worked, right? When you go back to why Social Security was created, people used to die a few years after they retired. So it's a very different ball ball game. So the dynamics have changed dramatically, and it's very important now to think about, you know, money lasting um, for many, many decades. So we have uh, technologies in health and healthcare changing. We have all sorts of things taking place in, in terms of genomics and oncology and down the road. What happens when human lifespans, when 100 is in a rarity, when that becomes run for the ordinary and, and we start seeing 110, 120 as not tremendous outliers? Are we going to eventually have a, a problem or are we going to have to reconfigure how we think about our portfolios when we turn 68 or 70 and not shift uh, to that much more of a conservative portfolio? Absolutely. And that's been the case for at least a decade now with, with rates, interest rates being so low. Mm-hmm. You know, the old, the, the year, decades ago when people used to talk about switching to bonds, bond returns were in the mid-single digit. And right. of course, at these levels, that would be unconscionable to have a heavy bond weight if you need the money to work for decades to come. So most firms have indeed encouraged clients to maintain a, a good equity weight when they retire. It's ever more important because of longevity. And the other thing that's important is to assume that your expenses grow with inflation over time. So you capture the risk of living for quite quite a long time. So we talked earlier about the shift from active to passive and how they could coexist. Uh, but underlying that has been the shift from pricey to cheap. And, and we've seen 
what some people call the Vanguard effect, pressuring fees across the whole industry. What's your take on this, and and what do you see happening going forward in terms of uh, fee compression and everything associated with that? It's a, it's a really interesting topic because I do think there's going to be much more segmentation in that um, getting cheap exposure is is a good thing for many people, but paying fees for a broader advice model mm-hmm. also makes sense. I think there will be a, 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 an appropriate demand for transparency of fees and for clear value uh-huh. in what a client is getting for those fees. So I think there's these are these are good trends for for clients. So transparency, value, and what was the third uh, bullet point well, on that Well, I think list? these have to be appropriate to the value offered. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes yeah. perfect sense. So you've seen some changes that have taken place in the financial industry over the past few years. What do you think is the most significant change that has occurred so far, and what should we be on the lookout uh, in the future? I would have to say speed and information. Um, I love looking at video clips from the 1987 uh, market crash because you see reporters standing at the top of the New York Stock Exchange with pages giving them handwritten notes about what was happening on the floor. Amazing. Nowadays, obviously, we all know that everyone can get real-time quotes on their phones. Um, there's a ton of information you can look at all day long. The problem is a lot of it's not very good. Mm-hmm. So information is not judgment. Information is not assessment. It's not perspective. And so the, the challenge is is cutting through all the information to get to truly good advice. Um, so it's that that's created actually more of a challenge because the more information people have, the easier it is to react to it as opposed to keeping their eye on the long term, which for most individuals is indeed the right thing to do. Do we suffer from information overload? Totally. Is there is there just too, a fire hose of not judgment, assessment, or perspective, right. but just raw news and headlines and political volatility. What does that do to an investor's attitude and how does that affect their tendency to shoot themselves in the foot? Well, it does create those new risks. Um, you know, studies have shown that back in the day when people could only look at their accounts once a year, maybe once a quarter, they stayed long-term investors. But now that they have daily information, they tend to do more things more quickly. So continually keeping the eye on the long term um, is really important. And, 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 and I, I tease about everything we're doing here today in that because there is 24-7 news, there's going to be a lot of talking heads all the time telling people what to do, what to buy, what to sell. Um, and, and you have to stay away from taking that advice too seriously. So one of the things I noticed since, since you brought up the, the information flow, after the election in 2016, all investors seemed to want to ask was, what is Trump going to do for my portfolio? And if you remember early on, oh, this guy's going to kill my portfolio. And then that very quickly became, oh, this guy's going to be great for my portfolio. How do you respond to questions about politics when uh, 2017 is a perfect example? Probably the most politically volatile year in my lifetime, and at the same time, the lowest volatility in the markets. It is a fascinating situation, isn't it? Um, we actually looked back over time at all the geopolitical events back to about World War II to show that 
it actually has always been the case that geopolitical events get a lot of headlines but have very little impact on the mm -hmm. markets. Um, the only time they do is when something political works into the real economy. So, for example, um, the OPEC oil embargo in the 70s, uh -huh. which did affect the economy, of course. Sure. But many other things that we think of, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you name it, they really had very little impact on the market. And I think that as time has gone on, there's been more appreciation of that, which is one of the reasons markets have been relatively complacent through lots of scary headlines. Because what matters over time, of course, is what companies are doing uh, in terms of earnings growth, in terms of um, you know getting, getting momentum for the long run. And that's what investors really have been focusing on this year. We have been speaking with Kathleen Fisher of Alliance Bernstein. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and hang around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, investment. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Kathleen, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm, we've been looking forward to this since I saw you having a conversation. I think it was with Tom Keen. Yes. Might have been uh, some time ago. So uh, Bernstein is a giant firm. I mean, you're half a trillion dollars plus. It's what, almost 4,000 employees? Is that about right? At 3,500. 3,500. Mm -hmm. So that's a substantial firm. What's it like working in a shop that large as a person who's as visible as you are for the company? Bernstein, Alliance Bernstein, and I'm saying Bernstein because that's a brand we use for private you started, client. Yeah. So you started after the merger, yes, right? I didn't realize the merger was 2000. Yes. I thought it was after. The that. Alliance Bernstein merger was 2000. And actually, we, our brand now is AB, which, uh -huh. is, it, which is great, um, nice and snappy. And um, it's a wonderful firm and that everyone in the firm is focused on one thing, which is providing great outcomes for our clients, because that's, we only do one thing, right? Uh -huh. We do investment research and management. So that's a real luxury relative to being in a financial conglomerate right. that has tons of different unrelated businesses. You don't have to cross-sell insurance or bank accounts or any of that We focus craziness. on providing great financial returns and the appropriate risk-adjusted returns for our clients, whether they be institutional, private clients, or retail channel. So it's it's a really um, wonderful place to be working since everyone knows our goals and objectives and, and how we apply resources to achieve them. So um, I think that's a, it's a great model because I do believe strongly that companies should have a, a core competency to exploit mm -hmm. in a world where depth and breadth matter more than ever. So I remember Bernstein back in the 90s when... Uh, constantly top-ranked on institutional investor in terms of the research team, the individual analysts. I could pull some names out. Paul Sagawa was on telecommunications. I remember him downgrading Lucent, uh, Cisco, a bunch of telecoms in 99, and people thinking he's crazy. And all those stocks then dropped 90%. So Bernstein was known for their research. Following the merger with Alliance, has the business changed all that much? 
Do, I'm, I'm trying to remember, do you guys do syndication, IPOs, those sort of stuff? Or is it purely investment management and planning? It is investment management and research. And our sell side, San Francisco Bernstein, continues to win accolades in the quality of the research they provide. Now, that business model is undergoing some pretty serious changes. At one point in time, that was a big profit center for the big banks. Now, it is the research department there in service of the rest of the uh, asset management firm? How, how is that working these days? Um, the, the Bernstein uh, Cellside Research Group is, uh, as I said, incredibly well-regarded and well-positioned to gain market share in a world where pressures mm-hmm. are indeed changing the nature of the business quite substantially. Yeah, the, there's been a lot of fee compression in that space. And you mentioned the lack of liquidity on the bond side. That half of the sell-side business has changed dramatically also. But you guys are fortunate that your focus is pretty single-minded, and that's relatively unusual in this in this industry. I think it's a real advantage to clients to have a firm that really does know what it's doing and why it's doing it. To, to say the least. Mm. So let me jump to my favorite questions. These are the questions I ask all of our guests, what's the most important thing that people don't know about your background? Well, you might have gotten a sense I'm a pretty disciplined person. I work a lot. Um, I don't, uh, my, my young colleagues know I'm not on any social media. No I, social media, uh, no, no Twitter, no, no Facebook. No social media at all, um, LinkedIn, which makes me a bit LinkedIn? of a Luddite, I admit. Uh-huh. But, but, the, but the thing they, they are learning sometimes is that I, I read a lot about what's going on. So I'm actually much more up to date on what's trending than they would expect me to be. And the other really interesting thing for most of my younger colleagues is that I do um, believe that we're in a golden age of television. I do think that the Sopranos unleashed the most amazing sets of programs ever. And so when I have any free time on long holiday weekends, I do binge watch everything that I haven't seen, just like a teenager might do. Okay, so give me some names. I have my favorites. Um, tell me what, what you're watching and enjoying. Well, uh, to keep it nice and light, I did do The Crown over the holidays. One um, of the guys in my office loves that. I yeah, can't get into yeah. it. No, I, th- I think a lot of people think it's slow, but I think it's riveting because I am a bit of an Anglophile. Uh-huh. Um, I, I do love House of Cards, and I'll probably still love it without Kevin Spacey. Um, I love Orange is the New Black, so I could go on. But you Orange see, is the New yeah, Black is yeah. a tough watch. Yeah, I find that's yeah. like a little gritty. I think I think men have a harder time with it than women do. Maybe. Yeah. Um, have you seen the marvelous Miss Maple on Amazon? I've read about it. It's and, fantastic. And I know she was the the young woman on um, on House of Cards. Mm-hmm. So I want to see that. Uh, my wife and I binged through the whole thing yeah. over the holidays, and it, it's really tremendous. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors. You talked about what you're doing at uh, AB now, mentoring women. Who were your mentors? You know, I, I wish I could say I had a couple of incredibly important ones. I really didn't, and I regret that because I do think it's so important. The one thing I did learn, though, was to make sure I got diverse opinions from people because everyone has biases and everyone mm-hmm. has um, some blind spots. So I have found it's really good to ask multiple people uh, questions over time to get help. What investors influenced your approach to asset management. One thing I love about investing is connecting the dots. Um, Everything's interconnected. Everything can have uh, unintended consequences. 
when I was young and at Morgan Stanley, uh, Barton Biggs was sure. at Martin Stanley. He's since passed away, and Barton Biggs used to uh, take a big trip every year and write about it. And the reason I'm highlighting that is that um, clients loved it because it reminded them of the big picture, it reminded them to keep focusing on the long term and recognize all these interconnected issues as opposed to being very, you know, focused on one particular stock or something that was really quite uh, ephemeral as opposed to the longer term. So I, I gave him enormous credit for helping people think broadly. This is everybody's favorite question. What are some of your favorite books, be they investing or non-investing related, fiction, nonfiction? What are you reading? I confess I'm not reading anything now. I tend to be in high work mode this time of the year, but I, I love books, again, that help connect the dots. A book that I read that I recommended to many people is uh, Gotham, which is, I think it's Gotham, A History of New York to huh. 1898 or so. I think it was written maybe 20 years ago. Um, I forget the author's names, but there's a second version coming out. But it is, it is a, a very big book. And the reason it's so wonderful is it actually goes through the first 300 years of New York City and highlights both the all the accidental forces that made New York become what it is today. And the primary one is that the, um, the Dutch influence on New York is really what made it such a commercial center from inception. We tend to think of us, I think we tend to think about the English influence uh, influence, but you know the Dutch influence was really much more important to what the city became over time. Gotham, A History of New York to 1898, Edwin Burroughs and Mike Wallace. Yes, and Mike Wallace now has just created, just done a second book, which goes from, I think, uh, 1898 to 1917 or something like that. So it's a much shorter time frame, but gets into the next uh, next period. Greater Gotham, A History of New York City from 1898 to 1919. Mm -hmm. By the way, I don't know any of this. Google and Amazon are my uh, backup uh, hard mm -hmm. drive. What else? What else have you been reading? Or Let me tell really you like? another book that I recommend to everyone, which used to be quite well known. I don't think anyone under 50 knows of it, but um, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Does that ring a bell sure. with you? Yeah. And it was a movie also, um, Well, it, it was, but the book, is, the book is much more important than the film in that, um, I think it was written in the 40s, but it was written about the 30s. Uh, it was a, a little bit based on Huey Long, but more importantly, it's about, it's, it's got so many themes, but it's about history, it's about how you can't, you have to, you have to accept and learn to, to accept your history, but also change. Um, unintended consequences of actions is a big theme of the book. It's it's magnificent, and I, I it also reminds that geography and climate um, are something we don't think about as much anymore. But when you read that book about the South in the 30s, you feel the heat and the humidity and the dust, and you realize how that affected the way people lived in ways that we are sort of immune from today. So it's a great American novel that brings in many important social themes. I just finished How We Got to Now, and one of the six factors that led to modernity was simply air conditioning. I would say air conditioning is the most important invention of the modern era. It, it's changed where people live. It's changed the political Computing dynamics. power. We couldn't have yeah. computers without air right. conditioning. It, it, right. It's really, you don't think about that. We take it for granted, but that's a huge innovation. So we talked earlier about how things have improved for women in the industry. Generally speaking, what do you think is the most significant changes we've witnessed in finance over the past 25 years? 
You know, like with um, with most industries, I think the power of the consumer is really a big trend, right? Hmm. Um, you see it in every industry, right? The consumer preferences have to be met. They have so many choices. And that's certainly true in private wealth management, right? There are many different choices. And I think it's it's really good for clients in that they are seeing uh, a, a broad array of different models. And every firm is therefore going to have to figure out what's the model that works best for them and the clients they want to serve. Makes, makes a lot of sense. So given that, what do you think the next shifts that we're going to see are going to be. Yeah. So um, you figure there's technology coming sort of from the bottom in that the robo-advisors have highlighted the opportunity to use technology to give clients quick information and let them do a little iterative work on their own. But at the higher end, um, you're seeing that there's actually more need for good advice than ever before. Tax code changes, um, lots of different issues as the investing landscape changes. All these things demand that good advice be available. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. You know, I think you're looking for something very uh, idiosyncratic there, but I got to tell you that the most important thing that ever happened to me was getting through 2008 and nine with private clients because, mm -hmm. and the reason I know how important that was, um, I, I, I realized I don't remember anything about that year except for work because we basically dropped everything to make sure we could work with our clients. Sure. Um, it, as you know, it was a stunning time, and anybody in stocks saw their stocks go down. Um, happily, our clients uh, often had high-quality municipal bonds that really helped offset uh, those losses. But it was a time when um, the faith and the, the way the world worked was shaken to its core. And that affected me as well. I had to say, you know, is everything I believe to be true about investing still true? And really had to work through that. Um, and, 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 and it was a very important experience to, um, to say, yes, indeed, the, words, the world does still work. Um, but it did require um, uh, that our firm and many others really focused on risk control in ways that we hadn't had to do before that. Um, so we developed some very powerful risk control tools uh, that um, have been very added to our clients uh, ever since then. It, it's hard to stop and realize it was only 10 years ago. It feels like it's so much further away, but it's 2018. It's 10, just a mere 10 years later. That not that astonishing? And many people are still scarred by it. But there's a post-traumatic right. stress disorder amongst investors who I can't tell you how many times I speak to people what do you mean you're in 50% cash? Well, I'm 50% I'm cash. I was 100% cash through 2015. Right. Really? That that's some serious scarring. Well, it's like it's like we used to talk about the people with the de depression era mentality, sure. right? It's the same thing. People that lost a lot of money in 08 and will never trust markets again. It's, it takes a long time to get over that. The the line I remember from many years ago is when you look at 1929 you did not get back above those levels till 1954. It was 25 years later, and someone said you needed a whole generation of people to be born, grow up, and start working again before you even had a chance to, to breach those levels. Tell us what you do to relax outside of the office. What do you do to stay either mentally or physically sharp? 
So um, having been a working mother for most of my career, my children are now adults, 31 and 30, sorry, 32 and 28. Um, I always had to um, really focus on my job and my family and, and kind of let other things fall by the wayside. And that luckily worked for me. I'm also on some boards that are very important to me, but the... Um, I don't have a high uh, need for fun, which is really good. Um, I, my fun is is at my family. Um, I have a wonderful husband and wonderful children, and now a grandson. Um, so I, I spend most of my time focusing on seeing them as much as I can. Um, I do have a trainer. I have a, a trainer once a week who pushes me to do things that I would never do by myself, which I think is wonderful. Um, but I will tell you, I, I don't have any dramatically interesting outside hobbies like bungee jumping or anything like that. <laughs> you didn't strike me as a bungee jumper. No. That wasn't the no. first thing that Discipline. was Discipline. A... So um, you, you mentioned you work with some younger women in the firm. If a millennial or recent college graduate came to you and said they were interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? I would give the same advice I've been giving for decades, which is you have to love the content of what you do. You you will always be competing with people who do love that content. So if you don't, they're going to have an edge. So you have to know why you're in the field and find if you if you like finance, if you like markets, you know, find the spot that really lights your fire because um, it, it is competitive. It should be, and and therefore you want to love what you do, and the rest will come. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing and markets today that you wish you knew 30 years ago? Mm, I think um, patience um, and, and never, never, ever letting yourself get swayed by the short term is something that, you know, when you're younger, it's hard to do sometimes. Um, I look back at some of the things I did back then, and, and if only I'd held on to certain positions that I didn't, it would have been a whole different story. To, to say the very least. Yeah. We have been speaking with Kathleen Fisher. She is the head of Wealth and Investing Strategies at Alliance Bernstein. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you could see any of the other 180 or so such conversations we've had. Uh, we enjoy your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps me put together this conversation every week. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer extraordinaire. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.